This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 189, about Daredevil 304, Blindsided. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. We're on to episode four of season three of Daredevil, where we're talking about Blindsided on episode 189 of Defenders TV Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there. I am one of your other hosts, John. Welcome back, fellow Sporkheads, indeed. <laughs> Sporkheads. Nice job. Nice. Yes. I thought I'd blindside them. <laughs> Speaking of blindsided, we haven't actually mentioned this in the podcast before, fellow Defenders, but just to let you in on a little inside uh, discussion that we had, Chris said to us a couple of months ago, before the announcement for Daredevil's release date was coming out, he said, as long as it's not in October, I'll be happy as hell, <laughs> because... October is just completely out for me as a month. I'm away. Uh, if we get the episodes early, potentially we can record a couple of episodes. So it'll cover up the fact that I'm away for most of the month. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't get them early enough. We only got them a week beforehand in a week that Chris was already away. So sadly, Chris is not joining us for this episode. Yes, yeah, so Chris isn't with us again, uh, which is really sad. Um, but he will hopefully... As we move into November, he will start ramping up his attendance because at the moment, the uh, register of attendance is looking pretty bleak from Chris. Yes. But yes, he's he's sorting things out with work, you know, going to far off places. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But he will be back uh, for November. He says he's not traveling in November at all. So we should have him back for all the rest of the episodes of the season. The only episode he definitely won't be on is our comic book talk episode. That's myself and John talking about Doctor Strange again, back for Strange Tales in early November. Yes. And just to clarify, he is not a hitman. No, he's not. <laughs> yes. But yeah, and we will be back with Strange Tales uh, with the next issue of Mark Wade's run. Uh, we're currently having kind of a Doctor Strange, Doctor Who crossover with the two Doctors uh, to an extent. Of. Yeah, <laughs> Kind of. Um, and we'll also be talking about uh, Soldier Supreme as well, the uh, the Marvel mashup of Steve Rogers and Stephen Strange, which is leading me to get the names completely wrong. Uh, but come join us for that. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast over at DefendersTVPodcast.com. You'll get all of our content about Marvel, including all the Netflix shows that are left, uh, all the previous Netflix shows, all the comic book content we're doing as well. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast on any good or evil podcast catcher. But I think with that, I think we need to get into the actual episode details, John. Yes, our spoiler-filled review. Derek, what are some of the episode details? Well, the episode is directed by Alex Garcia Lopez. We have talked about Alex before uh, earlier on this year. Uh, he's an Argentinian director who started off working in the UK, directed loads of episodes, things like Misfits and Utopia, but that's not what we talked about before earlier on this year. We talked about the fact that he did the finale of Luke Cage season two, which unfortunately now, as we know, is the series finale of Luke Cage, the last full episode of Luke Cage as a character. Loads of great stuff going on there. Uh, the episode was called They Reminisce Over You. We love the episode. We absolutely oh, really, really good. Yeah. Adore he- he also did Cloak and Dagger, so he certainly um, has been immersed in the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. uh, on TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he did Ghost Stories and Suicide Sprints of Cloak and Dagger, with two episodes there, which we really, really enjoyed as well. And of mm-hmm. course, I loved Utopia. Um, it was a Channel 4 TV series, again, based around comic books and someone writing a comic book about... Um, the end of the world. The, exactly. <laughs> and it was uber-stylish. I'm very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I must say, I would recommend anyone to check that out if you're interested. 
um, it's certainly worth a watch. Mm-hmm. And as we know, as we'll get into our, when we get into our spoiler-filled discussion, this is a big episode for one reason, for an 11-minute sequence that happens in the episode. And the credit for that has been given from Eric Olson. The credit for the idea has been given to this director, Alex Garcia Lopez, who saw the script and said, this would work really well as an 11-minute sequence. <laughs> we will definitely be heaping praise on that as we get into the episode. Most uh, definitely. He is also directing an upcoming episode for The Punisher Season 2 later this year, so that's his, not his last time in the Marvel Netflix universe as yes, well. Yes, so, and he is show. scheduled to do another episode of Daredevil as This well. season. Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that as well. Um, the episode was written by Liwa Nazardim. Uh, this is his first writing credit for the Marvel Netflix universe, written a number of episodes of long-running series The Goldbergs comedy show, half-an-hour half comedy show. And an interesting connection between the Goldbergs and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The actor who plays all of the Koenig brothers on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Pat Oswald, also does the voiceover for all of the episodes of the Goldbergs as well. So uh, there's an interesting connection for you. Yeah, that's really interesting and bizarre. I have to say... I have a little soft spot for the Goldbergs, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminds me slightly of the spirit of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, actually. Interesting. Um, (laughs) So it's cool in that sense for me. I quite enjoy it. I think they're kind of going for the the 80s version of that 70s show, not that 80s show, which was terrible. Uh, (laughs) There's that kind of 80s nostalgia vibe. Really good fun. But John, let's get into the details of the episode. Do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. Matt Murdock impersonates Foggy Nelson to infiltrate Rikers Island Prison to find out more information on Fisk from the Albanians. He finds out that Wilson Fisk had paid the inmate Jasper Evans to attack him to convince the FBI to move him. But Matt also finds out that he is a part of Fisk's plans. As safe in his secure penthouse, Wilson Fisk orchestrates an attack on him in the prison. Mm. With the help of the Albanians, he manages to fight clear of prison to a waiting yellow taxi cab. Meanwhile, despite a tip-off by Ray Nadim, Agent Dex Poindexter is investigated by his superiors for the suspicious deaths of some of the Albanians the night Fisk was attacked. But when Fisk is interviewed about the agent's conduct, he covers for him and later thanks Poindexter personally for his actions, putting Dex firmly in the sights of the manipulative Wilson Fisk. Elsewhere, a fed-up Foggy Nelson, angry at the demands from Matt, tells Karen Page that he's still alive. With this knowledge, both Karen and Foggy go on the offensive against Fisk. As Karen learns of Felix Manning, who runs Fisk's nested offshore companies, Foggy, convinced by his girlfriend, gains the support of the NYPD to challenge Blake Tower in the upcoming election for district attorney. As the day draws to a close, a groggy Matt Murdock wakes up in the back of the yellow cab as it plunges off a dock into the Hudson River. With the dark, unforgiving cold water rushing in, Matt Murdock is trapped. Nice, John, nice. I bookended with a yellow cab. Mm-hmm. But is it... A yellow cab. Yes. Is it a yellow cab that is driven by Mark Spector? Hopefully the second one wasn't driven by Mark Spector, or else he's very, very evil in the Netflix universe. <laughs> well, he, he really is. Um, but certainly uh, now, every time I see a, a yellow cab, I am, thanks to uh, the Moonlight podcast, Into the Night, uh, I keep thinking whether we're going to see some kind of crescent moon uh, appear. Uh, and certainly, I think, because the yellow cab... 
that Matt does get into uh, and which he retains outside the prison uh, when he makes his escape and finally escapes the the chaos going on in the prison um, seemed to be driven by someone from Egyptian origin Mm -hmm. as well. So uh, my juices were flowing, put it that way, that it could be uh, possibly Mark Spectre. And I will also say, I'm sure Ray won't mind me saying, we did also get a message on Messenger from uh, Ray saying, I've just seen the opening of the episode and I'm really excited. I'm not sure whether he was excited by the end of the episode when the cab goes into the water. But anyway, let's get into our case notes. If you don't know anything about Moon Knight, that bit won't have made any sense to you, but it did make us quite excited on behalf of the Moon Knight podcast. Definitely. But yes, on with case note number one. Mm -hmm. Foggy runs for district attorney, D.A., yeah, he is an angry bunny, or should I say an angry bear, uh, is old Foggy Nelson. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly with Matt asking him to kind of sit on the sidelines and also never to contact him again. It's kind of a bit of a sad moment here, uh, because when Matt goes into prison and speaks with Michael to try and get um, an audience with the leader of the Albanians, there is that moment because Michael has only ever known Matt Murdock with Foggy Nelson and that they both managed to get his sentence reduced. It kind of harks back to happier times for these two. Mm -hmm. And yet at the start, we really see Foggy being quite angry that Matt has really just sidelined him uh, and that it's him to go after Wilson Fisk um, and not Foggy or Karen. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why he goes and tells Karen, not only because he's never going to lie to her again, but also just that he's angry at Matt. He needs to share that. He needs to get it off his chest. This really does kind of motivate at least Foggy and I think Karen as well to really do something um, about it. And in the case of Foggy, with absolutely the bright idea from his girlfriend, Marcy, Mm -hmm. um, decides that he's going to become a bit more public. So public, in fact, he's going to challenge Blake Tower for the election of uh, district attorney. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's Foggy is angry at everybody here. It's not just Matt. It's Matt for putting him in this position and saying to him, I'm back, I'm alive. Wilson Fisk is free as well, which Foggy is really angry about. He's pissed off. We saw that last episode. And he's also really angry at Blake Terror for just standing by and letting it all happen. Again, Blake Terror not explaining his position last episode to Foggy has just made him so angry. He's basically said, ah, what am I going to do about it? The FBI have control here. Off we go. And Foggy's going, actually, maybe we can do something about this with the help of Marcy. And Marcy does seem to be guiding him down the right path. Here. Yeah, definitely. You know, we see Foggy's checking the locks on the door over and over again. <laughs> he's got the wild hair. He's not dressed up in his normal outfit suits like he's been dressed up for so many weeks or so many episodes now that we've seen him in. He's kind of a bit disheveled, but he's got someone by his side who's standing by his side helping him out. Unlike Matt. I suppose if you want to draw the defined lines between those two characters, he's being pushed in the right direction to do something really good for the city. Absolutely. It really is like a call to action for Foggy, this Mm -hmm. anger against Blake, against Matt and against Wilson Fisk. Exactly. And I do like the fact that Marcy says, well, what are you going to do? 
check the locks every day yeah. or every five minutes, um, which I thought was a really nice moment. And also, he has to work on his golf swing as well. <laughs> of course, because you can't become DA without getting a good golf <laughs> swing in place. Uh, but she does suggest that even though he probably won't become district, district attorney, he probably will make a few friends on the police force just by even trying here. And by doing it, that means he might actually drive Black Tower into some action. Interestingly, and again, not going to highlight exactly what happens in the comic books, but interestingly, this is a huge story for Foggy. I think we might have actually mentioned it back in season two. Foggy and Blake Tower are kind of known as rivals for the position of district attorney in the comic books. So uh, this is something that's, that's been brought into the story of Daredevil season three from the comics. Which is quite cool. Um, but we see him go and kind of press on another former relationship with Brett Mahoney, who we've seen right the way back to Daredevil season one. Now, getting quite high in the police force uh, as we see he's able to command a room full of police officers who are having a party uh foggy probably shouldn't be there he looks like the only non uh, nypd person in the room by the looks of things fair dues to him <laughs> yeah. for taking on that room they're not looking happy with having a defense attorney in their presence someone that gets perps off the things that the cops bring them into into court for you know um but he does a pretty good job right he really does. He He's very, very persuasive here. And I think you really see that change um, in Foggy Nelson, uh, you know, from season one of Daredevil, where he's really become this confident lawyer. And, you know, for Jews, he's going to become DA, I think, I hope. Maybe. Maybe not. But as you say, Marcy certainly says, you know, getting to know, getting the support, getting the backing of a few of the police officers on on the force um, as a defense attorney is no bad thing. Yeah. It's great to see Brett Mahoney here, Detective Brett Mahoney back. And just quickly to say, I do like that Brett Mahoney stands up for him because... I didn't think it was going to happen. I think he, I thought he was actually trying to push Foggy out the door and wasn't going to give him any support. I do like that he stands up and goes, you've got a minute. You know, all of the relationships that have been going on for the years, it, over the years, has been quite antagonistic between the two of them, with Brett Mahoney kind of looking at Foggy as a bit of an ambulance chaser to begin with. But he does realize that Foggy's got his heart in the right place, at least. And he does get the support of the police force, which is really good. You know, that's yeah, really probably quickly. quite a big push for someone going for the DA. Yeah, definitely. Um, so watch this space. Mm -hmm. uh, Blake Tower has got a competitor here, a rival for this position of district attorney. Mm. But I think on to case note number two, because, um, yes, there is a devil in cell block D. Mm. Okay, that's a comic book arc that I've taken that from. I promise I didn't check what cell block he was in. <laughs> it is a comic book arc. It's, it's an L Ed Brubanker comic book arc. I'll talk about that in the notes later on because there's enough to talk about in the 11 and a half minute sequence that we see here uh, on screen. First off, just to talk about it, as you mentioned earlier on in your synopsis, John, um, we have got Matt arriving at the prison here using Foggy's ID to get in through the door to speak to a guy called Michael, a former client of Nelson and Murdoch, uh, who had 16 years knocked off his sentence by the excellent work of these two defense attorneys. And he seems to be quite grateful until he realizes that Matt's here to cash in on that relationship they had in the past. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting you say cash in as well, because there is that moment, um, which is really nice, where you get the soft focus back uh, as Matt's listening in on the room where he's asking uh, Michael to sort of set up a meeting with the Albanians. But in particular, their leader, Vic Yusufi. Um, and 
you see other people at different tables turning around mm-hmm. and and listening to the conversation that they're having. He hears the knuckles cracking of Michael as Michael is getting more and more sort of aggravated by what Matt is asking him to do. And I think it's really interesting that he is willing to jeopardize the safety of this inmate, of Michael, mm-hmm. for, okay, it is the greater good, as it were. But, you know, you see in Michael the terror in just simply being asked about this. You know, as he leaves the room, he punches um, Matt kind of goes, get him away from me, I don't even know this guy. And as he's being dragged away, he's turning to these different people in the room saying, I said nothing. You know, my mother's still safe, isn't she? So it's interesting that Matt would put him in that position. You don't expect Matt to do that, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as we heard from Foggy, um, you know, the Matt that he spoke to, who he saw... um, there was something missing. Yeah. Uh, and here you kind of get that sense again, because Matt has jeopardized this guy's safety. Mm-hmm. And you know that he would not have done that in season one. In fact, he would have gone all out to have made sure that he was still safe. You know, he would have done it in a very different way. I absolutely. Think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I suppose there is just a thought that this guy, Michael was coming out to meet foggy Nelson, who would, who was the person that was obviously there to meet him based on the documentation that Matt provided. He wasn't expecting to see Matt on the other side of the table. So it does beg the question, at what point was Wilson Fisk informed that it's Matt Murdoch that's in here? Was he informed? Was he informed it's Foggy? Was Wilson Fisk's whole plan to take down Foggy Nelson until he saw on the cameras, actually, that's Matt Murdoch? Yeah. So interesting point there. Is Wilson actually going after the people surrounding Matt Murdock and actually it turns out it's Matt there. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point because, I mean, Foggy in the apartment with Macy is really um, concerned about her welfare Mm -hmm. and his own. I mean, it is the reason why he is going to run for election is because Macy says, well, you know, rather than hiding, make it public. You know, Foggy's there thinking it's going to be a public execution, but she's like saying, no, get the safety from being in plain sight of Wilson Fisk and being public because anything that happens will shine right back on him. Exactly. So it's 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 a really interesting point that actually um, it could have been that he was going after Foggy here, uh, but certainly, yes, uh, after that punch from Michael, uh, Matt has to go to the infirmary where, in the greatest Admiral Akbar kind of tradition, it's, it's a, a trap. trap. <laughs> you know, there is this absolutely dodgy doctor. Uh, I have to say, I'm glad he's not a GP. I certainly wouldn't want to go to uh, his surgery no. um, anytime soon. Ultimately, what kicks off an absolutely unprecedented, amazing fight of the century. Uh, effectively, a hallway fight to end hallway fights. Um, oh, yeah. From season one of Daredevil, season two of Daredevil, I think Luke Cage season one, and a whole host of others, even Defenders. the Defenders. Yep. So, I mean, this is 11 minutes of pure storyline, as you said, taken in one shot, and it was amazing mm-hmm. it was absolutely fantastic just wave after wave after wave of adversaries coming at matt murdoch and i love the fact that within this one shot you have that conversation between vic 
and the Albanians and then Matt Murdock asking why has Fisk turned against them? What is it that they have on him that Fisk is trying to bury mm-hmm. through the wipeout of the Albanian gang? Um, so it's really, really great. And then it carries back in with the escape of Matt from prison going through absolute chaos. I love the fact that you keep getting Code 33. Code 33 uh, lockdown is in effect coming across the Tannoy. And of course, after this conversation with um, the Albanians and with Vic, uh, you really see that this guy on the Tannoy is lying his absolute head off here uh, because there's just pure chaos going on. I mean, there's <laughs> fire bombs being chucked out, there's smoke bombs, there's shivs being buried into police officers, mm-hmm. uh, into inmates, the truncheons are being um, used all over the place. And all the while, um, you have this camera moving through with Matt Murdock um, and then the Albanian dressed as the police officer uh, in a, an amazing way. And, and preceding that, just the fights between the inmates and Matt and then the two dodgy prison officers mm-hmm. and Matt. Uh, just absolutely incredible. I think narratively what it's saying in here is really good as well. The idea that, as you say, the first people that go up against Matt, firstly, it's the doctor. So Fisk has got into the infirmary. He's on the phone to Matt. He's on video camera connected inside the infirmary of, of the prison. So this is how much he is still connected to this prison how many people are in his pocket you know he's got he's got the guards and as you say he's also got the prison inmates as well he's got everybody involved so while that guy that's calling out code 33 it's in lockdown he may believe that's the situation but he's not even controlled the prison on a normal day (laughs) fisk's in control of the prison at all times and for what fisk says goes and the only people that are on the side of matt really are the albanians which is really interesting nice little bit of detective work again from matt yeah it's it's a great way to do this you know we started off the season with fisk saying i'm ready to do a deal with the fbi and actually the deal is of benefit to Wilson Fisk and Wilson Fisk alone, I suppose. He's trying to take down the Albanians. He's trying to get rid of them for other reasons that we're to find out. Yeah, and I mean, that really connects in with Karen's uh, story, and certainly we'll come to that with mm-hmm. Karen's case note. But certainly, um, yeah, we, we see him kind of make this deal with the Albanians. He manages to convince Vic that, you know, he will take down Fisk. They weren't able to do it, but he won't fail. And he gets the information that Fisk actually is playing the FBI here. And Karen finds that out as well on a different matter. But here, Fisk is playing the FBI. He sets up that shiv in the gym room with a man who is alive and now free, a guy called Jasper Evans all to convince the feds Mm -hmm. um, that he needs to be moved. And and it's a real nice moment, you know. And I got it right. I predicted it at that moment in the gym room when he got attacked. The moment that Wilson sits back down as the alarms go off and he doesn't give in to his rage that we saw in season two and season one. He steps back, everybody else steps up against the wall and Fisk sits down with this stab wound in his stomach and immediately tells the FBI, well, I've been attacked, so you need to take me out of this place. So, yeah, so finally, I got something right. Uh, I want to just give myself a tiny little clap on the back because of all the other things I've gotten wrong. Slap on the back, and we'll give you a clap. Thanks. There we go. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. It was really good. You know, Wilson Fisk, you know, m- master manipulator really here, um, certainly showing uh, his true um, conniving nature. It's really interesting. You, when Wilson Fisk phones up Matt Murdock and you can see Matt Murdock about to go into some kind of uh, righteous spiel <laughs> and Fisk just puts the phone down. You know, it's like... You didn't just come after me, you came after Vanessa, and that I cannot forgive. And you know that Matt Murdock is about to go into, I'm coming after you, there's nowhere that's going to be safe for you. Oh, he's about to go in the full Taken rant right there, isn't he? Definitely, (laughs) definitely. There's nothing that pisses anybody off more than, now you just listen to me and hearing a deadline on the other end of the phone. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great move. But it, it was also that moment where I was like, Ah, okay. You know, you've talked about Brubacker already. Mm-hmm. Uh, his arc, Man Without Fear. It also has that moment where Matt Murdock is incarcerated in Rikers Island. It's that moment where you have Iron Fist pretending to be Daredevil in the city of New York. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, is Matt Murdock going to be um, locked up here? Before I saw and experienced that full 11 minute single take yep when the police officers came i was like oh is he just going to be put into prison here and we're going to have that moment where matt murdoch increasingly gets frustrated because he can't do anything in prison i'm actually glad that they didn't do that yeah uh to be honest i I think that would have lost the series momentum uh so i'm really pleased that matt ultimately got out of prison yeah and that is the arc that i'm talking about the the arc is called the devil and cell block d the one by brubacker yeah that's within the man without fear book um interestingly that also served as inspiration for the punisher being in prison with wilson fisk back in season two so we did talk about that arc back then i think we might have even bought the collected version of that book at the time as well so we so we read it around the time but yeah i absolutely got these feelings i was like oh that's how they're going to get matt into prison he's going to be captured by people in prison and put behind bars and because of course he gave over foggy nelson's id at the front door well they don't know that matt's in there they might think it's another inmate he might not be able to get out somehow you know um thought it was going to be quite interesting i thought he was going to be injected and knocked out um one thing i would highly recommend for anybody who enjoyed this 11 minute sequence have a read of the vulture article where eric olsen the the uh, showrunner for the show describes in quite good detail uh, how they filmed the scene it is absolutely a one-take shot this is not what they did in season one, which we all thought was a one take sequence. It was, which was actually about five or six takes cut into what looked like one long flowing shot. This was actually shot seven times over and over again from start to finish to get one take that was used in the final episode, which is unbelievable. That's a huge undertaking to do a 10 minute shot like this where there's action there's story moments there's acting from the from the actors uh that's going on like some actual dialogue between each of the characters you know they're not completely out of breath one tiny point that i really liked uh in this article is that eric olsen points out that many moments across the scene there's glasses full of fake blood that charlie cox was picking up swigging and then coming back on screen taking a punch and spitting out the fake blood to make it feel like he'd been in a fight for this 10 minutes going on really cool some great great stuff in there 
Re- yeah, that's really, really cool. And I'm really glad that there were actors doing some acting. <laughs> <laughs> well, unlike just doing a fight sequence that they've been training for for months uh, and leaving the acting part of it as not part of the one take shot is what I meant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's quite interesting that including that discussion with the Albanians, that is also part of the one take shot. He says that's the moment that the audience would have expected it to be cut into a normal scene where you'd use two or three cameras to cover it. It's all one take. It's amazing. Well, well done. Yeah, really good. I have to say, the moment that Matt Murdock puts that syringe that's lying on the floor into one of the inmates' legs, and he sit, seems to like snap it off, mm. I was like, "Oh wow, okay." I mean, I I thought the whole fight scene, Matt being thrown around, um, him just sort of beating down on the um, the guys in orange, but also the cops. Uh, I thought it was excellent, but that moment with the syringe, uh, it really, really felt um, visceral. I, the, the idea that he'd snapped off the the needle uh, in the guy's leg yeah. still. So, yeah. yeah, really, really good. And what makes it scary is that is definitely Charlie Cox doing that moment because you can see his face full on when he does it. Uh, another couple of moments, obviously, huge shout out to Chris Brewster, who's been Charlie Cox's stunt double and the stunt coordinator for the show for the last couple of seasons as well. Um, huge shout out to him. But it's one of those moments when you're going, this is a one-take shot. Did he actually break off a needle in the guy's leg as part of the one-take because because of what was going on? But yeah, a great, great moment. Really, really good. Uh, I think everybody's talking about this scene. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier on, John, it all leads to him getting to this New York cab that's been waiting outside for ages. And the minute I saw it, as he gets out and everything behind him is on fire and explosions going on, I was thinking, what's this cab driver going to think? Is he going to go, hang on a second, I just left you at the front door yeah. and you're being carried out of prison by a, by a security guard. There's a massive riot going on. But we don't get an answer to that question because we're not sure if that's the same taxi driver that's in the cab or was he replaced at that moment and Matt passes out pretty quickly in the back of the taxi. I think he's replaced mm-hmm. um, because I also think that is why Matt Murdock was allowed to leave the prison mm-hmm. whilst it was on supposed lockdown. So exactly. I was wondering if it was on lockdown, they certainly wouldn't be opening the gates yeah. at that moment. And especially given that there are inmates outside fighting with uh, prison officers. So for me, I think the driver had been beaten up, chucked in the boot of his own taxi cab Maybe. or taken out and chucked in prison diced up who knows dark At- or sent off to learn the ways of Kanshu, maybe John? yeah possibly possibly <laughs> the moment that a groggy matt waits wakes up because he's passed out because the needle kind of did catch him mm-hmm. um in the the doctor's uh sort of uh surgery in the prison the guy who's driving it is not the same person as he does the commando role out <laughs> and uh, we see you know this taxi heading towards the pier into then the Hudson with Matt Murdock yeah. uh, in the back. I do like the fact that the taxi meter reading basically shows that he spent well over one hundred and eighty-seven dollars uh, on that taxi ride. Yeah, that's about as much as it cost us to get back from New York Comic Con to Hoboken, wasn't it? Probably, yeah. I, but I <laughs> that would say, taxi yeah, in New York. <laughs> because it crossed a state line. That's right. That's why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we missed the last ferry as well. Yeah. But that's why I think it should be more because it started off with daylight and ended at nighttime. So maybe that was $187,000 <laughs> <Maybe. laughs> um, that 
that taxi uh, cost in New York. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, cabs in New York are, like, so expensive. Unless you get the set fare, definitely. But Matt also misses the ferry. He goes plunging straight into the river. Um, I don't think he was intending on landing on a ferry uh, in the taxi, but he had no control at all. But let's see what's yeah, happening. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of taking the plunge, mm-hmm. case note number three, uh, Karen... And Karen is cracking up uh, with the pressure, it would seem. Um, Yeah, she had a moment where she behaved really quite odd in this uh, episode. I was kind of like wondering how it played out. And I think we will get to see that a bit more. But she pulls a gun on three guys who have been hassling a couple of women on the other side of the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, And she goes over to confront them again. Uh, but this time pulling out her gun. She's making a stand, I suppose, but I, I, I wonder if the pressure of finding out from Foggy that Matt's still alive, yep. trying to work the the Fisk investigation at the at the newspaper, because even with her dealings with the contact that Ellison has given her within the FDIC, which must be some kind of federal financial kind of agency or whatever looking into fraud um you know she's really impatient you know you see her in the office at the bulletin going we had an appointment on friday um can we move it to earlier in the week and she goes tomorrow tomorrow's fine and then the next thing it's like i want it now as she like turns up in the evening on her door Mm -hmm. um demanding information uh but she does get it on the provider that she gets out of there right away and stops hassling this poor lady from the FDIC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's given a name, Felix Manning. And you noticed a bit of a connection with that that I missed completely, John. Felix has been mentioned before, hasn't he? He has, in connection with Vanessa and her being moved to a safe house in Barcelona. Wilson Fisk talks about Felix uh, being the guy that is keeping her safe mm-hmm. and he is the man dealing with that end of Wilson Fisk's uh, affairs. And I think here, this is the moment where we find as well, through this investigation by Karen, that Fisk is really playing the FBI um, in that he is moving his money around through these different companies with Felix Manning at the helm of it. But it's effectively dodging the FBI asset freeze that has been placed on all his holdings. Wilson Fisk really is playing the FBI here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's bought the presidential hotel. He has loads of different things going on. He's controlling Rikers Island prison. Uh, he's causing an absolute riot there, literally. literally. So, I mean, uh, yeah, this is, a, I like how this connected in with what, Matt Murdock found out from the Albanians as well. Um, and I really liked Karen potentially cracking under the pressure. I just hope it goes somewhere. I hope we get the reason why she pulls a gun um, on three guys. Yes, I know they were hassling women on, on the streets of New York. And certainly I like the fact that she confronted them. But pulling a gun, it seems as though she's taking uh, a leaf out of the Punisher handbook for uh, resolving situations. And maybe that's it. She did spend a lot of time in the company of Frank. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's kind of that thing. Maybe she's just going, these kids need to see a gun in their face and need to realize that, you know, doing things like this, as she says in the line, she says, friendly reminder, kids, games like that can get your head blown off. 
you know. Um, I'm wondering if she is just taking her actions into her own hands like she saw Frank do. Because, as you say, she does feel like she is going through some really tough times when Foggy arrives in the office and she's sitting there trying to tell him all about the, the advances that she's gotten into on Fisk's case. It seems like she hasn't slept in days. So she seems to be cracking under the pressure as much as Matt is as well, and as much as Foggy was at the beginning of the episode, and she has nowhere to direct it either, other than into this case of Fisk. So that's everybody cracking under the pressure in this episode. Yeah, they they really were. Um, I have to say, though, I really enjoyed the conversation between Karen and uh, Foggy. Mm. I really enjoyed that melancholic look back on the three of them from season one, and it kind of really feeds their anger. It's not just that they're angry at Matt not telling them that he's alive or telling, like, Foggy to back off from dealing with Fisk or the issue of Fisk, but it's also that that anger stems from the thought of what they were like as this trio, avocados at law, <laughs> really helping out the community of Hell's Kitchen. Mm. And I really like that. I love that moment where... Um, Foggy says it wasn't Matt who I saw even though uh, it was all five foot ten of him uh, but something was missing you know and, and Karen makes that point which goes well you know it used to be busy Matt and then the weight of the world on his shoulders Matt but it was just Matt you know Foggy coming back saying no but there was something different about him that something was lost there in Midland Circle and as you say Karen going there's always been something lost in Matt. He's always been like that. You know, it feels like they're thinking back on their old relationship yeah. in season one as being this wonderful time in all their lives, when in fact, things were bad as well back in season one. And it feels like this idealized version of their relationship, of their friendship, is what stuck with both Karen and Foggy for this many years. And actually, when looking back on it, well, he was never really telling the truth to them either. He was never telling them that he was the Devils of Hell's Kitchen, you know? And then the minute he did actually reveal to them the secret, he buggered off and disappeared out of their lives and didn't tell them he was back alive, you know? Um, so there seems to be a bit of a realization here. And that's partly what seems to be driving Karen as well. It seems to be that she's going, well, I don't care if this guy wants me out of his life. I'm out of his life. He kept me that way. So I'm going to continue doing what I know how to do and continue in investigating Fisk and taking him down. Foggy's going... I'm going to continue to do what I'm going to yeah. what I'm going to do, and I'm going to pursue this angle of being the DA. We can't depend on Matt to do it, yeah. and Matt won't depend on us. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of walking out of uh, their lives, I thought someone else was having someone walk out of their life as well. And I think onto case note four, that's Ray's family are scared for his safety. Mm. That moment in the operations room in the hotel, I thought this was where his wife was effectively saying, we're moving out of the house. Your son is petrified. I'm petrified for our lives. Um, and we're moving to my sister's where he has a bedroom that he can actually sleep in. He's not going to be upset and worried about his father. So I, I thought he was losing his family there yeah. uh, for that moment. Now, that wasn't ultimately the case, um, but this is a, a nice little angle uh, for Raina Deem here, um, you know, working all these hours trying to get this promotion, or at least that's what he's telling his wife. I still do think there is something dodge um, okay. about Ray. Uh, I don't necessarily think that he is as above board um, as we would seem, and that's something that I'll certainly bring out in our final case note mm -hmm. um, 
But we get a nice little insight here into Reynadim and his family. Uh, and in particular, I really like the conversation that he has with his boss, Tammy, mm. uh, about how he should treat his son. He kind of thinks that he should really say how dangerous his job is and all of that, whereas Tammy comes and says, no, you need to treat your son like uh, your CI, your snitch, where you make him feel as safe as possible in such an unsafe and chaotic world. Yeah. You know, that you become their crutch, effectively, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And she talks about this um, really slightly implausible situation where her father leaves, you know, highly explosive uh, chemical tankers in the driveway of their house. Uh, She talks about how effectively her dad lied to her about the tankers and the numbers on it. Um, He said that four was low risk uh, chemical tanker when in fact it is the most risky Mm -hmm. uh, as Ray points out. So absolutely thought that story was going to end with, and then he (laughs) had a crash in the middle of New York about 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And the only thing that happened was that one young boy was turned blind and it was okay. You know, I just thought there was going to be that moment of connection between the two because it seemed like such a specific story uh, to talk about, you know, that he drove for a Roxxon Chemicals uh, many years ago. It would have been really cool if it had. I don't know whether it would have been very cool. I just expected that to happen. I think that would be tying things up way too far. Exactly. I mean, it's a good job he wasn't a nuclear scientist um, who brought his work home as well. Well, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, But the one thing I did like about this uh, scene that was going on, you do need to keep Ray in the story, obviously. He's quite a big character and one of the new characters this season. But the one thing I did like was having this idea of the TV coverage of what's happening with Wilson Fisk having an effect on his son. It, you see you see his wife, you see that she will stand by him no matter what. It doesn't matter to her that he's putting himself at risk for the betterment of their future and the betterment of their city. But once it starts to affect her son, that's when she has the problem. They have a child now. He has to think about that. He, she knows how important it is for his career. Yeah. But potentially he needs to think also about the fact that he has someone at home that's able to see what's happening on the news, that's been able to see how many of his fellow officers are now well, dead and how many of them are in hospital. And that may be somewhere that he's going to end up and he needs to assure his son. It's just nice to see a little bit of that relationship pulled out because you don't often see married people in this profession and people with kids just don't often see it dealt with in this way. I thought this was really, really nice to see because uh, it is a different angle. Mm -hmm. But I think on to Case Note 5 because I wonder if it really is. Case Note 5 is... Who eats a burger with a spork? Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> it's my favourite line of the episode. Well, sporks are absolutely fantastic <laughs> implements. And yeah, I don't know who would eat it with a spork, a hamburger, but certainly Wilson Fisk likes to. Yeah. Just to kick off the point, I just want to speak about something that we've kind of talked about the last three episodes. I think they kind of put a bit, a bit of a fine point on Dex's relationship with Fisk. He doesn't like him at all. We see that moment when the food's being brought to him Dex takes a bite out of it, takes all the nice stuff away from this first class (laughs) burger and chips meal, all the condiments, everything, sticks it all into a crappy tray and puts the top back on. It really feels like a two fingers up to Fisk from Dex. He's kind of going, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I'm watching you. Yeah, that's my responsibility as an officer of the law. And yes, I did save you, but I don't like you. Yeah, it really feels like two thumbs up. So I think we talked a couple of times because we basically talked about anybody that you could see on screen being possibly in the in the pocket of Wilson Fisk. It felt like is Dex in Wilson Fisk's pocket? Yeah, it's funny. No, I think in in this episode for me, 
this was the moment where I actually thought that for Poindexter, it was Wilson Fisk actively trying to recruit him. Um, and this is why, uh, coming back to Ray as well, yes, it's nice to get that upstanding family man, but is he really? I like the fact that Ray here tells uh, Dex about the OPR investigation. You know, it's it would be inappropriate of me to tell you everything I know about this investigation. Mm. Uh, you know, there is a suspicion uh, from the Office of Professional Responsibility uh, in, in the FBI that the killing of some of these Albanians were excessive. They didn't match the forensics. But ultimately, Ray tells him that this is happening. Okay. Um, yeah. Poindexter could have gotten suspicious about that, obviously being the only one being asked to leave the room when the officer Wynn comes in to, to have an interview with Fisk in order to determine what actually happened uh, to these Albanians. But Ray really gives him that hint. And then later on in the episode, you know, he then asks his colleague to go and get a coffee as he goes back through the video reels of this interview between Wilson Fisk and Officer or Special Agent Wynn. And Ooh, video reels brought to you from the same place that access cards are brought <laughs> exactly. in the 80s. <laughs> um, but there is that moment after the interview where Wilson Fisk looks directly at the camera. Yes. And it is that moment where you go, so did he know... Did he think that Poindexter would do this? And if so, how would he know that he even knew about this except because he has been told that and he has directed someone to inform him as to what's happening? Maybe I'm not clear on that, but I, I just feel there was a hint that Ray was setting Poindexter up to go through those reels so that he would get the the death stir from Wilson Fisk, which would prompt Dex then to go in and confront him whilst his um, colleague was downstairs grabbing coffee. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. And that's why I would say Dex isn't a member of Wilson Fisk's team at this moment in time, mm -hmm. but is being actively recruited by Wilson Fisk because of his exceptionalism. And we do get that moment where effectively... Poindexter sees Fisk cover for him, and when he goes in to confront him, you do at least see that he is empathizing with the situation that Dex is in. You know, that he is being questioned for doing his job, that the papers are going against the FBI. They aren't saying that this guy is a hero because he saved both his life personally, but also upstanding fbi agents mm -hmm. again is that upstanding fbi agent ray nadim who's also on the payroll of wilson fisk okay. possibly potentially i don't know um do you know i want to posit another theory on this slightly different to yours do you know they don't really talk about superpowers that much in these shows you know, what is it that makes Wilson Fisk the kingpin of crime? What what gets him to his position? I'm wondering if all of these are slightly kind of saying that his superpower as the kingpin of crime is how well he's able to read people and how well he's able to manipulate people into doing what he wants them to do. It would have been easy for them, for example, to have Tammy be the one to tell Dex that he's under investigation. That would have been pretty easy. But what Wilson Fisk has actually done is just manipulate all around him 
and just know what everybody's going to do all around him. I'm not sure if anybody's actually receiving payment anymore. I just feel that Wilson Fisk knows people so well that he's just anticipating every move they could possibly make. You know, the fact that he has that newspaper sitting right on his table to be able to roll it out and go, this is what the press is saying about you, Dax. The fact that he makes that look directly into camera directly after that recording is made. Again, that must have been, you know, 20 or 30 minutes beforehand, potentially, because why would Dex come back up to the room to review the tapes immediately after the interview yeah, happened. Yeah. So he looked directly into the camera after that, knowing Dex is going to look at this moment and going to walk into my room an hour or so later, you know. Um, so I just think this is trying to say he's very good at manipulating and seeing kind of into the future by anticipating people's movements. Yeah, no, I, that's, a, that's a really good theory too. You know, this manipulativeness of Wilson Fisk mm-hmm. um, is equally fantastic to watch uh vincent d'onofrio do this i mean i think the other thing from this is i absolutely am enjoying uh poindexter and wilson fisk together Mm -hmm. i think the relationship here is very antagonistic and i thought to begin with that that was simply an act because of a few things that had been said and just what happened the night uh the cavalcade uh transporting fisk to uh, the hotel got attacked i thought that seemed really deliberate attack um on the albanians uh, to the point where yes it was um because the opr are investigating it but it's more because that poindexter has got issues he's seeing a psych doctor um you know a psychiatrist um, he has got uh, various issues which we don't fully understand yet Mm -hmm. Um, so i'm really enjoying uh, each time poindexter and wilson fisk are on screen together and i have to say i'm really enjoying uh, the performance of wilson bethel as special agent poindexter Mm -hmm. I, i must say i'm really enjoying it and he really makes me interested in this character and i can't wait for the next episode mm-hmm yeah, really, really interesting. This character, really good relationship here between Dex and Wilson Fisk. Excited to see what's coming up in the next episode. That's really our case notes for this episode. I think I brought in both of my notes into our case notes section. Uh, the only one really I had was just to mention Born Again one more time. Uh, that taxi going into the Hudson River is from the Born Again comic books. You will buy it. I'm sure you will. Uh, I'm sure it's on sale on Comixology at the moment, to be honest, to celebrate uh, Daredevil coming out. Uh, and also mentioned The Devil in Selbuck D, written by Ed Brubacher, art by Michael Lark really good arc uh, with Matthew Murdoch inside prison good one to see where they may have got some of the inspiration from for this episode but that just begs one question before we go into our feedback kick it off with you John do you defend Daredevil season 3 episode 4 blindsided oh I do defend this episode of Daredevil Um, yes I give this 5 sporks out of Mm 5 with a side order of burger and chips yep I really enjoyed this episode. Um, I, I like the kind of slow reveal of Fisk's manipulation here, um, both from Karen and from Matt meeting the Albanians. But I mean, the big wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, here is that fantastic fight scene, uh, conversational scene, all interwoven together in the prison. Uh, that one shot effectively, um, of Matt Murdock fighting his way out of prison, picking up intel from the Albanians, fighting his way a bit more out of prison with the help of the Albanians. What an amazing scene that was. Um, 
it's a phenomenal um, response to a director spotting an opportunity within a script. Um, you know, Charlie Cox, uh, Lopez, the director for spotting it, and um, the showrunner for going, well, let's go and run with it, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously Charlie Cox's stunt double, Chris Brewster, mm-hmm. uh, as well, for doing all... All of this, so, so good. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm excited to see Foggy run for district attorney as well. Probably not in the same way as Matt ran around this prison, though. No, not at all. <laughs> um, you know, to see what happens, because I, I like the fact that both Karen and Foggy have kind of been energized in their own way to go after Fisk almost a bit in spite of, of Matt Murdock because mm. of what he's said to Foggy. Uh, and I, I kind of like that. And I'm absolutely intrigued to see how Poindexter uh, handles uh, what he's just witnessed with Wilson Fisk. Fisk covering for him, protecting him from this internal investigation. So really, really nice moments that really make this episode so exciting and just tease it up for the next episode for me. Uh, So this was a great, great episode. Mm -hmm. So definitely defend blindsided episode four of daredevil uh yeah derek do you defend this episode of daredevil oh 100 percent. i absolutely defend this episode absolutely brilliant episode you've said everything that i could possibly say about this episode um it was fantastic the idea that this 11 minute scene was presented to us in this episode is just fantastic we heard at New York Comic Con, we heard Eric Olson talk about a scene coming up where they absolutely blew the fight scene from season one out of the water. I believe they've achieved it. Everything I see from anybody who's seen that scene tells me it's much better than the first season. Things have to progress if you're going to make a great show like this even better and they absolutely nailed it in this episode. But also there's so much other great intrigue around uh, for all the other characters that are going on. Great, great episode, and really excited for episode five coming up. Excellent. So, yeah, on with some feedback. Um, our first piece of feedback comes from our email address over at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com, and it comes in from 084. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one thing is to say thank you to 084 for your thoughts on Iron Fist Season 2. Unfortunately, we just finished recording our episodes at that stage, so we weren't able to uh, introduce it into the final podcast as it had already been uh, published on the website. But thank you so much for those thoughts. But we have some thoughts from 084 for Daredevil. They say... When I found out about the October 19th release date for the season, I made sure to take the day off from both jobs so I could take it all in. Mm -hmm. And I have all the thoughts. Instead of sending you a 45-page thesis at the end, I'm breaking it up into chunks. Here's what I thought about episodes one through four. Tense. That's pretty much the gist of it. There's a palpable air of fear in the air, a fear of what's going to happen next. Last time we saw Fisk, he had threatened Foggy, which had me wondering which Foggy scene would have him or Marcy brutally murdered. Mm. Then there's Matt, who is at his lowest point physically, emotionally, maybe even mentally. He's essentially tries to die at the end of episode one, and if not for the return of Fisk, might have kept on trying. 084 continues, When Matt started seeing visions of Kingpin, I was afraid that maybe all the menace we saw in the trailers from Fisk would come from Matt's head. It would have been interesting, but disappointing. Mm. 
Thankfully, by the end of episode four, it's abundantly clear that Fisk is finally a full-grown kingpin and deliciously evil. Mm-hmm. Couldn't have put it better myself. Deliciously evil. Oh, wait, four also goes on and says, Wilson Bethel just creeps us out. He does an amazing job at it. We know from the trailers exactly who he's going to be. So we're watching his scenes intently. That's another source of tension, anticipating the full villainy to come out of these two antagonists. Finally, that prison sequence. Fisk's revenge is exacted on Murdoch as he is forced to fight his way out with no protective gear. And more importantly, no anonymity. Mm -hmm. He's forced to show Fisk what he can do or die. And boy, does he show what he can do. Charlie Cox and Chris Brewster are both incredible in this stretch. And even though it's a little obvious when each is on screen, like the few minutes before Matt falls behind the chair where we only see his back, we're too tense to care. Mm -hmm. I have more thoughts about Karen and Maggie and the amazing story of Agent Nadim, but most of them come in the later chunks of the season. Can't wait to hear your thoughts as well. Have fun. Thank you so much, 084, uh, for that feedback. It is really great to get your thoughts for Daredevil Season 3. I completely agree. It is tense. I, I think this has been some of the best opening episodes or run of episodes um, in a long while on uh, the Marvel Netflix shows. Um I say a long while, but I do also think Luke Cage and, in fact, Iron Fist have all kind of delivered real solid episodes um, in in these second seasons. And I think here, uh, this is just masterful writing, storytelling, uh, and and direction in in these first four episodes. I think Wilson Fisk is phenomenal, and I totally understand what you're saying. It's great that. He is a realized physical threat to Matt Murdock. It isn't just a psychological threat, but Matt is also psychologically like knackered effectively. Um, and I, I, I think he is mentally knackered as well. And I think it is Fisk that, and the threat of Fisk that pulls him back. I think that's a really interesting point and definitely, um, Agree with you there. And of course, yeah, that prison sequence beyond phenomenal, uh, completely with you uh, on that. Yeah, thanks, Oed, for on that. Yeah, definitely think that what Daredevil is achieving with its first few episodes is the tenseness. It really feels like that Dunkirk thing where it just keeps ratcheting up the tension over and over in episodes. While we absolutely loved Luke Cage season two and Iron Fist season two, it wasn't about the tenseness in those shows. It was about the character building and development that's going on. We know all these characters. We've spent, you know, three seasons with them now at this stage. So what they're doing here with the tension just ratcheting up over and over again every episode as we go on if that keeps continuing, I'm going to have a heart attack by episode eight. I don't know whether I'm get to the end of the season, uh, but loving it so far. Thanks so much for that feedback. I've already checked the email and I know you've sent in feedback for other episodes later on in the season. So thanks so much for that. If anybody else wants to send in feedback on episodes further down the line or your thoughts on the entire season, please email us over at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com, just like 084 did. For the rest of you, if you're following along with the episodes as they go, we're posting spoiler posts on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV Podcast. You'll see exactly when we're watching the episodes because that's when we put up the spoiler posts and you can discuss away about any of the episodes as we go. So going right back to episode one, Sharon Cole says... 
By the way, the FICO score is not limited to mortgages. Obviously, the FBI agent has a home, for example, but it's used to gauge whether or not you're eligible or trustworthy for any line of credit. That's in reference to me calling out what a FICO score was. I was trying to point out some of the points of the FICO score. I'm sure it's hugely complicated. And I know John started to fall asleep when I was even talking about the bits I did talk about. But thanks so much, Jared, for putting that out. Yeah. On our episode two podcast, Robert Phillips goes, good call about season three being a follow-on from season one, John. It's like Luke Cage 1 and Daredevil 2 were prequels for The Defenders and Punisher, and this is back on an alternative train, Mm -hmm. definitely. Um, It feels much more within Daredevil world, effectively. Uh, And I think just because it has so much of Matt karen and foggy uh not together this time but it's really good to have uh meaty amounts on all three of the characters and i feel Uh, like i have no idea where it's going either i don't know where i don't know what we're aiming for here with the first couple of seasons we were aiming for a defenders and then we were aiming for a punisher and then we were aiming for maybe a luke cage season two right now i have no idea what the end point on this show is going to be except for maybe the snap of a finger Mm, interesting uh robert goes on to say very much loving robert goes on to say about episode two very much loving the way the show keeps refusing to have good or bad good or bad what good or bad very much love the way this show keeps refusing to have good or bad. Massacre by FBI boy. For a second, I thought it was Castleback. Mm-hmm. Foggy sort of abandoned his family. Karen's first kill may not have been caught on Daredevil season one camera. And Matt. Matt is confused and confusing. And when Mother Superior was on a break from nunning, what did she do? All very good questions that I'm sure we'll find out later on in the season. <laughs> yes. Hey, nunny, nunny. Um, I do like from nunning to nun. Is it a verb? Is it a verb? Yes, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. We also got some feedback on our episode three podcast. Donald Dennis says, I'm really trying to figure out how you guys think Dex has a history with Kingpin. It really feels like their first association is when Dex saves him and the Kingpin is trying to figure out what the levers are to get him to work with him. If Fisk were working with Ray's FBI boss and they wanted to keep the noses of everyone clean, he probably would have found another agent to make a deal with instead of Nadim, who would bring attention down on them. Yeah, I think I did mention something like that, uh, that that was possibly what that whole discussion was with Tammy, that she was holding him back because she knew he had some problems. Um, and John, I know you were, we talked about it earlier on in the episode, that now you're just kind of saying that at the time, you were looking around everybody around Fisk as to what could his deal be. Why did Fisk want to get out of that kind of privileged position he was in prison, surrounded by everything he wanted and being able to control the streets from in prison? Why did he want to get out of that to possibly put himself in harm's way? There's obviously a reason. And maybe he's just gotten to that point where he surrounded himself with the people that he needs to progress and come back to being the kingpin. Yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to do a Karen or, or a Matt Murdock. I was trying to sort of posit... The idea that someone in plain sight is working for Fisk. And I I think at the moment I was like going, anyone is a possibility Mm -hmm. here. You know, Ray very much is set up because he has the financial troubles. And and then I kind of pulled it back and went, well, I don't think he is. Um, I think that was from 
uh, episode two or episode three. And then in this one, I could see how there could be a connection to Wilson Fisk in trying to recruit uh, Agent Poindexter. And I think that's the thing. I think this time I would completely agree, uh, Donald, with you in that it seems as though the Kingpin is trying to see how he can leverage Dexter over to his side. And he's made his play here with the whole thing about his exceptionalism, about not being rewarded for doing his job and protecting other FBI agents. Uh, you know, he, he's trying to show to Dex here, look, I'm on your side. I agree with you. Exactly. You're the one being hard done by. So I, I think I would agree with you. But it, there was something at one moment where I thought, you know, the guy coming in doing the execution type kills on the Albanians. This was before we knew that Poindexter had or required psychological evaluation before he go on. So I was like, that very much was execution style. Mm -hmm. I, he was protecting Fisk in the most efficient manner possible. And I think the one thing that you did point out was that Wilson Fisk seemed to know the name of Agent Poindexter very quickly. Now, he could have learned that from anywhere, as you said, but this is the thing you were trying to connect the dots, I suppose. Um, Donald actually finishes out his feedback with Dex really feels like he's just a novelty to Fisk right now, a weapon to be leveraged and a toy to play with and help break up the monotony of imprisonment. It'll be interesting to see if it comes back to bite Fisk. I've no idea. I'm only on episode four, says Donald. Uh, just like ourselves right now, Donald. Um, again, just trying to make sure that we are trying to connect the dots as we go along. As you know, we only watch an episode and then record our podcast as we go. So. Yeah, thank you, Donald. I must say, I really like the way you call uh, Dex that novelty to Fisk. I think that's something that... Uh, I really can see that where he is just playing with this guy. You know, it's it's the cat playing with the mouse, mm -hmm. effectively. Yeah. Jeff Charles also echoes the same thoughts, just wondering. Didn't think that Poindexter or Nadim are in Fisk's pocket right now, but I am ready to be done with Mopey Fisk. I think we're done with Mopey Fisk in this episode. He feels like he's found his place right now. Yeah. Alyssa Lynn Moskwa goes, I love all the scenes between Matt and Maggie. She really knows how to break through to him, even if he doesn't always listen. Mm -hmm. Foggy and Matt's reunion was heartbreaking. And about Fisk as the devil on his shoulder, some people have pointed out that in some cases of severe clinical depression, you can hallucinate. So that explains a lot about Matt's current mental state. Mm. Really interesting. Uh, thanks, uh, Alyssa. Yeah. I think going back to 084 as well, I think Matt is crushed, absolutely crushed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. On episode three itself, Robert Phillips says tentacled, twisty, reflection-filled plots and mirrors and smoke and and faints and crikey. The white-suited devil taunts the dark-clothed angel with horns. Karen unpicks the financial plot with which underlines Kingpin starts. Foggy drifts into a bar and Dex, well... Psychology teams need a fortnight to deal with just this episode. The murderous, murderous, stalky, sneaking creep. Big time. That's almost high Q level of description of the, of the episode, Robert. Very impressive. It, yeah, it really is. And I mean, to be honest, I'm not going to go for pizza on Tuesday anymore. Nope. Nope. Never have a routine that somebody yeah. can watch you Mix through. Mix it up. <laughs> Mix it up, people. 
Fellow defenders, mix up your routine. Exactly. Uh, Jim Carrey, speaking of the sneaky creep, Jim Carrey says, I wondered if Julie was a dog or a fish or represented by a gravestone, possibly, in the episode. Alex Anderson follows up on that point and says, "Um, I might be the only one, but when Dex was creeping on Julie for just a brief moment as she walked by from behind, I thought just for a second that it looked like Typhoid Mary. Obviously she isn't, but I saw a resemblance with the hair. I don't think it was on purpose, just a coincidence, but really, really enjoying the show so far. Excellent stuff. Uh, thank you, Jim. Thank you, Alex. Uh, on to episode four feedback. Ben Rush goes, from the 23-minute mark only, the raid has more insane hand-to-hand battle sequences. Utterly brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yet that fight within the prison by Matt Murdock on wave after wave of uh, enemies, fantastic. Uh, it's just so good. Completely agree. Um, and yeah, The Raid is an excellent, excellent movie as well. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. Absolutely. I'm sure it was a touchdown for this as well. But as I say, go read the Vulture article. There's a couple of other things that they reference in this scene as well. Definitely check it out. Uh, Jamie Alexander says, Matt walking out the door without his cane. He's definitely got his mojo back. The hallway farts are strong. Farts, did I just say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The hallway fights are strong with this episode. I kind of like this devil may care, pun intended, version of our favourite anti-hero. So long as he doesn't get himself killed by the end of the season. I think we all hope for the same thing, Jamie. Uh, She says, I've always liked Foggy as a character, but I think there's something to be said about Foggy without Matt. He's done well for himself. I kind of hope he's elected as DA. I'm loving the slow build between Fisk and Dex. Can't wait to see how it continues. Yeah, I do think the support that's come from Marcy and the work that he's gotten uh, working for Chow and Benowitz, I think that's kind of helped set up Foggy quite a, quite yeah, a bit. Yeah. He seems like a much stronger character in the past. Both Matt and Foggy were kind of codependent, I think you'd probably say. And then as Matt started to fall off the wagon of becoming the vigilante by night and giving up on his duties by day as a lawyer, Foggy had to carry the whole burden. And now being back in that position of kind of I guess, middle management in a law firm, I guess it just suits him better. Yeah, yeah. I mean... But Marcy is giving him a bit of a purpose as well. Definitely. And I like their their relationship. It it, it feels meaningful, even though I'm not expecting to see Marcy in every episode. Mm -hmm. You feel that that connection has been maintained. Um, So that's really, really good, yeah. Claire Laffer says, loved that fight. Oh, yeah. Uh, And Mike Brown says, that prison sequence was one of the most impressive things I've seen in the entire Marvel Netflix universe. I cannot even imagine the -the behind-the-scenes production coordination that went into that. Funny you should say that, Mike. You should check out the Vulture um, (laughs) article that Derek's mentioned. Yeah. An entire day off work to just to work out that scene right in the middle of the filming of the season. It's a stunning article, readers. (laughs) And I think it's really amazing to see that it wasn't intended by either the showrunner or the writers that the director here spotted an opportunity mm-hmm. um, presumably because of the other hallway fights even though they weren't necessarily one take that you could do that in one sweeping gorgeous uh, movement of a camera uh, and it just says so much about the quality behind um and in front of camera. Exactly. And exactly. also the person holding the camera who <laughs> had to pull off that flow through all of that scene. 
As I say, read the article, you'll definitely find some interesting points on there. Claire Payne also says about this hallway scene, I don't think I even breathed during that outstanding prison fight sequence. Lisa Richardson weighs in with, though I wasn't aware it was a single take, I actually clapped after the segment. It was breathtaking. Yeah, and Doug Green uh, brings up the sad point and connects I'm Fist in with Daredevil Season 3. He goes, we may never get Ward Meacham anymore, but Foggy has taken over his expressive hair. Absolutely, Foggy's hair at the beginning of this episode was wild. Um, <laughs> just just like Ward Meacham's. Yeah, so uh, a great replacement for Ward Meacham's um, expressive hairdo, for sure. Oh, I don't know whether I would say great replacement. <laughs> I can't do without Ward Meacham. I want to see him back sometime in the future. If you're going to bring back any of the characters, I want to see Ward Meacham back. But yes, Foggy's hair showing his distressed face stretching out into the sky as he was terrified at the idea of uh, Wilson Fisk coming around to his home. Yeah, and finally, Sharon Cole says, One, I'm amazed at Karen's six degrees of Fisk reporting skills. (laughs) If a cat is stuck in a tree, she'll find a way to link it to Fisk. Hashtag Fisk took my bag. (laughs) Two, wishful thinking I could have sworn Dex's girlfriend was Typhoid Mary. Uh, You're not the only one. Yeah. And three, I've heard of head injuries leading to psychopathic behavior, but Midland Circle landing on Matt had knocked the Catholic out of him. Tisk Fisk. (laughs) Absolutely. And a lot more, I think. I am confused on one part, however. Dex was there when Fisk was being escorted out of the prison. Mm. And if it wasn't for him, Fisk would be dead. But why did he kill his own men? Fisk just covered for him. Is that the cliffhanger? Ah, interesting. Yes. So um, what we find out throughout these episodes here is that the people who were escorting um, Fisk out of the prison obviously were the FBI. Dex is a member of the FBI. I think I mistakenly said that potentially he was on a break um, when we were talking on episode three. I said possibly maybe he was supposed to be on leave and rejoined the FBI, but actually he was part of the task force uh, saving Wilson Fisk. They were then attacked by the Albanians, knocking out or killing or injuring most of the FBI agents, except for Dex, Poindexter, who was able to shoot and kill all of the Albanians before then saving Fisk. So he wasn't killing any of his own men. He was killing just the Albanians. So I may have caused that confusion by my speculation that potentially Dex was already working for Fisk, but he wasn't. As I said, I get some right, I get some wrong. (laughs) Thanks so much for your feedback, Sharon. And thanks to everybody for all your feedback for this episode. I hope you keep it up for the rest of the season. As I said, pop on over to the Facebook group. You'll see our spoiler post already up there is episode five. We'll be recording that later on this week. Uh, Episode five of Daredevil season three is the perfect game. And that episode will be out next week. Yes, the perfect game. That sounds very interesting and very fisky, uh, or should I say frisky. Uh, or maybe it's Foggy learning his golf swing. Or, fo- well, maybe. Everybody's looking for the perfect game. Yeah, maybe, but I hope it isn't. Um, <laughs> I don't want to see him at a driving range for the entire episode. <laughs> Foggy in danger. <laughs> Possibly. Thank you, fellow Defenders, for listening. Please remember to head on over to DefendersTVPodcast.com to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Share the podcast. will help share the love about the podcast. Please uh, subscribe, rate us, and leave a review on your favorite podcast catcher of choice. Mm. Yep, now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. We'll talk to you again next time. 
Yeah, as always, fellow defenders, thank you so much for listening. It is a pleasure speaking with you, as always. Uh, I'm off to start working on that swing of mine. Um, (laughs) And once I've stopped swinging... uh, You might have the perfect game. I might have the perfect game. Indeedy, doodly, doodly. Um, And with that, uh, we'll speak with you again next time. Bye. Hey fellow defenders, I don't always do outtakes, but since it's John's birthday this week, here's a compilation of him getting Wilson Fisk's name wrong over and over again this episode. (laughs) Happy birthday, John. What is it that they have on him Mm -hmm. uh, that Whisk, that Fisk, and she's given a name called Felix Manning, who has been mentioned before by Whisk. Poindexter sees Fisk cover for him, and when he goes in to confront him, you see that Whisk is at least... Fisk is at least... So that is why he's able to buy the presidential hotel. So all these different things, Whisk... (laughs) Cheapest. Whisk. Why is it Whisk? I don't know. Wilson Fisk. Whisk. <laughs> you like doing a shipper name for his first name and surname because you like them so much. <laughs> it's like Ray Nadim. I'm just going Ray Deem. <laughs>